would like to greet you and welcome you to the assembly this evening. If you consider yourself a visitor, we're certainly glad that you've chosen to be with us for a short time. I want to spend a little while talking about personal evangelism. If you know me, you know personal evangelism is something that's important to me. It's really become a part of who I am. And a lot of times when we discuss evangelism, we shove it in a box and we limit evangelism to public teaching or home Bible studies with people. And certainly those are direct forms of evangelism that that need to be done. And we're going to talk about one of those tonight. But I want to give this disclaimer. If you don't fit in one of those categories, there are certainly ways that you can be evangelistic and use your talents and abilities that God has given you to glorify Him. So I don't want this to be discouraging in any way, but I want it to be encouraging, and I hope that it'll be informative. If you have a Bible with you or you'd like to use a pew Bible, go ahead and mark John chapter 4, because what I hope to do this evening is consider an interaction that we see Jesus having with this woman at Jacob's well. And as we consider this interaction that he has, this dialogue that takes place, I want to consider the geographical context that surrounds this interaction. I think that it bears some weight as we go through our study. In verse number 3, you'll notice the text says, Speaking of Jesus, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through this area or region called Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sichar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, if you'll mind the map on the screen for a moment, Jesus is traveling, and he's headed north to Galilee from Judah. And on his journey, he's going to go through this region or area called Samaria, and he will eventually find find himself at this place, this city called Sichar. Sichar lies at the eastern foothill of this mountain there to the north called Mount Ebal. And Jacob's well is about half a mile to the south on the eastern side of Mount Gerizim. Now, this is important. This place is important. Particularly, it became important to the Samaritan people. They latched onto this. They clinged to it. Because when Joshua brought the children of Israel into the promised land, where did he bring them? To this place. And he divided the children of Israel, and he set them under one mountain and some under another. And he said, today, this mountain's a blessing, this mountain's a cursing, if you obey God or do not obey God. And him and the elders in the tabernacle, they stood in the valley of Seshem. So this place became particularly important to the Samaritan people. Now in verse number 6, it says, Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. And it was about the sixth hour, it was the heat of the day. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Now, this brings me to my first point. A point that I want to emphasize. A point, uh, if you will, I want to overemphasize. I I really want to beat this point to death. I don't want you to leave here confused in any way about our responsibility to go. You may remember Titus give a sermon some time back called, Go ye means go me. That's the case. In Matthew chapter 28, verse number 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. Mark 16, 15, Jesus says, Go ye into all the world. And when you get there, preach the gospel to every creature. What Jesus did not do is sit idly by waiting for this woman to interact with him because the chances of that were slim to none. 
And if we're doing the same thing, if we're sitting by idly, expecting and waiting for the world to interact with us, folks, we're wasting time. We need to get up and we need to go. Now, when I have these conversations with people about going and our responsibility to continue to fulfill the Great Commission, one of the things that's posed to me, a question that is posed to me often, is go where? And I want to believe that that question comes from a sincere place. But folks, I want to encourage you not to overcomplicate what God intended to be simple. Go where people are. Go where people conjugate. And when you get there, interact with them. Notice what Jesus says in Luke 14 and 21. Go out quickly. Notice the urgency with which Jesus is speaking. Don't overlook that. Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in. Notice that. Bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. Verse number 23, go out into the highways and the hedges. Jesus says, beat down the asphalt and shake the proverbial bush and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Let me ask you something. Do you want heaven to be crowded? I mean, be real. Be honest. Do you want heaven to be crowded? I want us to be packed in like sardines, shoulder to shoulder. Because that means that there has been an unimaginable amount of people who have surrendered their life to God and loved Him, and He has loved them. You want heaven to be crowded? Go out quickly. Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the cities. Go out quickly into the highways and the hedges. Bring in hither. Compel them to come in that the Lord's house may be filled. Because I don't care how we cut it, folks. We have a responsibility to the lost. We just do. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord... Do you know the terror of the Lord? Are you fully persuaded in your own minds and hearts this evening about the terror of the Lord? Do you believe what the Bible says, that it's a terrible thing for a sinner to fall into the hands of the living God? Do you believe that? If you do, my question is, what are we going to do about it? As a church, as individuals... Paul says if we know the terror of the Lord, we need to be in the business of persuading men. Like Jesus said, bring in hither, compel them to come in. I want you to notice what he says here in Colossians 1 and 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now listen carefully. Whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. Are you preaching? Are you warning? Are you teaching in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ? Notice what he says in verse 29. Whereunto I also labor. He says, I'm working, boys. <laughs> Striving according to His working. Are you? He says, which worketh in me mightily. Are you going to let the Lord use you and the talents and abilities that He gave you ultimately for His glory? Something that I think stumbles people is this idea of common ground. 
I think it's something that we allow to hinder us in telling others about our faith in Jesus. Common ground's good. If you can have it, great. It'll certainly open opportunities, open up doors of opportunity so that you can talk to people about Jesus. But what if you don't have it? John 4 9. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Did you catch all that? Because I sure didn't the first time that I read it. Because she's saying a lot, and I want us to hear her plainly and clearly. She says, I'm a woman and you're a man. Any of us that have to communicate with anybody ever understand the difficulty that comes when you're trying to relay a message to somebody else. If you're married, you certainly know how difficult communication is. I'll tell you plainly, sometimes me and Jesse aren't even speaking the same language. We're just not. Maybe you've read that book, Love and Respect, where he talks about the blue glasses and the pink glasses and the blue hearing aids and the pink hearing aids. Sometimes we just see and hear things differently. It's a challenge for us. I'm a woman, you're a man. She says, I'm a Samaritan, and you're a Jew. What's a Samaritan? Way back yonder, Israel was acting up real bad, so God sent Assyria to uh, discipline them. Ultimately, he took the children of Israel captive through Assyria. And Assyria was very good at conquering territories because of the way in which they conquered them. They'd go in and, you know, rough them up a little bit, take the territory, and then they'd take half those people and ship them to Assyria, take some Assyrians and ship them on down here to this region or area that they just conquered. And over time, what happens? Well, these people intermingle and intermarry and have interracial children. Who are they going to fight against then? Their own people? And so a Samaritan is simply a, a half-breed, a mixed race of people, half-Samaritan, or excuse me, half Assyrian, half Jew. And it was a people that was despised and rejected and hated by the Jews. And she's letting Jesus know that she understands that. She understands the, the racial difference between them. And, and to make sure that, that, that he knows that she understands full well the totality of all of this, she says the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So not only is, is she a Samaritan, he's a Jew... But they don't have dealings. And later on in their conversation, when Jesus is talking to her about her sin, He says, you've had five husbands and the one you're with now, he ain't your husband. If I can just be plain, she's shacked up with a guy. And she's had five husbands before that. She's living in sin. She's a sinner. But Jesus is not. In Him is no sin at all. If it takes commonality to have religious conversation with somebody, if it takes common ground for us to tell people about Jesus, then what in the world is he doing? He's sure not following protocol. Don't use common ground as a poor excuse not to talk to somebody about God. Because that's what it is. It's a poor excuse. In this instance with Jesus and His interaction with this woman, it all began with just a cup of water. It, it, it wasn't that they had all of these different things in common and, and they talked about their, their interests. No, they had nothing in common. 
except their need for water. Let's talk about controversy for just a moment. I grew up in a world of controversy. I saw fighting and arguing my entire life, and I was a great contributor to the cause. Me and my brother, we were raised to be as mean as junkyard dogs, and we were, to our shame. Don't go out looking for spiritual controversy with people. Don't do it. Stick this scripture in your pocket, 2 Timothy 2 and 23. Paul told Timothy, but foolish and unlearned questions, avoid. Plainly put, knowing that they only gender strife. That's all they're good for is causing a fight, causing an argument, causing controversy. And, and, and if you have interacted with people on a, on a spiritual level, having spiritual conversations for any length of time at all, you can tell the difference between a sincere and honest question and somebody who's trying to gender strife. And you've got to recognize the difference and go about it accordingly. This interaction that Jesus has with this woman, there were certainly controversial issues brought up. Three, to be exact. Did Jesus just avoid all of these issues? The first one was racial division. Do we have racial division today? Unfortunately so. The devil knows what his tools are, and he uses them well. I want you to notice verse number 9 again. She says the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And I think we kind of grasp that. But what does that really look like? You remember earlier it said that Jesus was going to go through Samaria. Jews didn't do that. No, they didn't, they didn't do that. Instead, they would travel east and cross over the Jordan River and then travel north along the Jordan River. And then once they got around that area called Samaria, then they'd cross back over the river and go into Galilee. Jews didn't go through Samaria because they had no dealings. And that was the statement that the woman made. But I want you to notice Jesus' response in verse number 10. He answered and He said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Three very important things I want us to see. He says, if you knew the gift of God, what's the gift of God? Romans 6 and 23 says that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Does she know about the gift of God? No. Does she even know who Jesus is? No, she does not. And he said that if you knew these two things, these very important things, we would have an exchange. You see, you'd ask me for water and I'd give it to you. Did he ignore her? No, he didn't. Was he careful in his response? You bet. And we better be as well when we're dealing with people and sensitive topics. The next one is in verse number 12. She asked him, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? When we're having conversation with people and, and there's somebody in their life who they view as a religious pillar, you're not going to win no war trying to degrade demean, just knock that pillar out from underneath them. You're just not. Don't try to measure up to them. You're fighting a losing war. I want to see how Jesus answers this question. Verse 13, He answered and He said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. Now remember the subject that they're dealing with. Jacob's well, the water. 
She says, are you greater than Jacob who gave us this well, this water? Him and his family, they drank from it. He says, if you drink from it, you're going to be thirsty again. You're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. You'll never be thirsty again. And notice this. He says, the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Is Jesus greater than Jacob? Absolutely. A hundredfold, he's greater than Jacob. More than Jacob could ever know, Jesus is greater. Was he careful in how he answered? Yeah, he was. But I think his answer is plain and clear. You drink his water, you'll be thirsty. You drink mine, never thirsty again, and you'll have everlasting life. How about the religious debate that she brings up in verse number 20? She says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Notice his response, verse 21, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. He says the where is fisting to become irrelevant. It's not going to matter. But notice verse 22, you worship what you know not. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Did he tell any lies? Was he plain? Yeah, he was plain. Sometimes you've got to be plain. But you can be plain and still be loving. You can be plain and still be humble. You don't have to be arrogant. You don't have to look down your ecclesiastical nose at somebody. No, you can just tell them the truth. And the truth is, her worship had been distorted. Again, long ago, when Israel split, they had a civil war, and the king of the northern kingdom of Israel said, you know, I don't really want my people going down to Judah for fear that they won't come back. So he dreamed up a wonderful idea. He said, I'm going to put two altars up. One at the southern point of my kingdom and one at the, no the northernmost point of my kingdom. That way they don't have to go down to Jerusalem to worship no more. You can just go to these altars and if you don't like this altar, you can go to that one. Their worship had been distorted. The reality of the matter, she did not know who she worshipped. Now in verse 23, I believe Jesus is calling everybody out on the carpet. Jew, Samaritan, whatever. He says, The hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Were the Samaritans sincere, or was this Samaritan woman sincere in her worship toward God? I, I'm going to believe so. And I'm sure even today there's so many people who are sincere in their worship to God, but the question is, are they worshiping Him in spirit and in truth? And I may pose the question to you. Maybe we're worshiping God in truth, but are we worshiping Him in spirit? Are you sincere in your worship to God, or are you just checking off some religious checklist? I hope that that's not our attitude. God wants true worshipers. It doesn't matter if you're a Samaritan or a Jew. It doesn't matter if it's in this mountain or in Jerusalem. He says, I want true worshipers. One of the things that Jesus does in his interaction with this woman is he appeals to her needs. And I think sometimes we're afraid to do that for whatever reason, but don't be. I think it's legitimate. We can use where someone is and maybe a need that they have to teach them spiritual truths. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. That's exactly what he does in John 6 and in other places. Revelations 3.17 <clears throat> The text says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor, blind and naked. 
When I lived in Austin, and I may have told this story here before, I don't remember. I was doing a little door knocking in North Austin, <coughs> and I come up to this big old nice house with nice fancy cars out front, and I knock on the guy's door, and I'm telling him about the church in town, and, you know, giving him my spill, handing him some literature and whatever. Long story short, he says, did you see the house when you came up here? Yes, I saw the house. Did you see my cars? Yeah, I saw the cars. We don't need anything. That was his response. We don't need anything. So take your literature and kick rocks. But in reality, he did need something. He needed something so great that he couldn't begin to fathom it. It doesn't matter how rich he was or what he had or what he'll have in the future. He was... Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And so many people in this world around us are that away. And we have got to show them that they have the greatest need of all, Jesus Christ. In verse number 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water that springeth up unto everlasting life. Notice the woman's response in verse 15. Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Did she get it? No, she didn't quite get it. She didn't quite get it. She's thinking, hey, this guy's got some, I don't know, nice tap water for me or something. It's not what Jesus is talking about. Just like it wasn't what he was talking about in John 6 when he's talking to these people about bread. Sometimes when we interact with people, it don't quite click with them. They're thinking in, in literal, physical, monetary ways. Don't become discouraged with that. Don't become frustrated with them over that. Be patient with them and walk with them through that. Because I believe that's what Jesus does with this woman. I was mentioning John 6. Notice verse number 34. These people, after Jesus has given this big spill about Him being the bread of life, they say, evermore, give us this bread. It wasn't him that they wanted. We've got, to be pe we've got to be people who are willing to be patient because they don't always understand. But what she did understand is that I have to walk half a mile one way to get some water every time I need it. And then I've got to carry that water with me back home. I don't know how often she had to do that. I'm sure it was more than she wanted to. So she says, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. <clears throat> Don't become discouraged when they don't understand. Be patient with people. Verse 16, Jesus begins to address this woman's sin. He said unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus saith unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saith thou truly. So a few things I want us to notice, <clears throat> and this first one may be a little bit of a reach, you can flog me later, but I think Jesus is kind of giving her a atababy, patting her on the back here. I want you to notice before and after verse number 18, thou hast well said, I have no husband. I think that he's encouraging her and telling her, I appreciate that you're, you're being honest. I mean, he just said, hey, you've had five husbands and the guy you're with ain't your husband. And historically, do you know why the Samaritans divorced? Fornication only. Here's this issue right here. So you fill in the blanks. Look at the end of verse number 18. In that sayest thou truly. 
when we're having these intimate conversations with people about their sin, first of all, they don't want to talk about it anyway. Let's just be honest. But here they are. They are talking about it. They are being honest. You probably shouldn't hit them in the mouth with your King James. You know what I mean? We can't shy away from talking to people about their sin. We just can't do it. You can't sweep it under the rug forever. It's uncomfortable. Nobody wants to do it. Nobody enjoys it. If you enjoy confronting someone about their sin, you're probably not the person who needs to do it. And so many times when, when, when those comments are made, people ask the question, well, why do we need to bring up their sin? Because sin is a problem. And I've said that before. And it's been taught and preached from this pulpit I don't know how many times. Sin is a horrible problem. And I hope that you believe that. Isaiah 59 and 2, But your iniquities, your sins, they've separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you that He will not hear you. Because of their sin, they're separated from God. Is that where you want them to be? Do you want them to, to not be able to, to have God's favor? He can't even look at them. Do you want them to cry out to God and God don't even hear them? Then we better talk to them about their sin. Luke 13, 3, also in verse number 5, Jesus says, You shall all likewise perish. If you don't repent, if you don't change your ways, if you don't quit pursuing self in this world, and you turn to me, if you do that, you won't perish. But if you don't, 1 Timothy 2, 4, Who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? Do you believe that? Do you believe that that's God's desire? 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. And indeed, He has been. And the fact that you're sitting on these pews tonight is a testament of God's long-suffering and patience toward humanity. It's for our benefit and for the benefit of all the world that God has not mowed the grass because He's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. That's what God wants. Do you believe that? Luke 15 and 10. Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Now I know often we hear this scripture and we hear people say, and maybe you say this, that the angels are the ones rejoicing, but look carefully at the text because I think the true meaning of it bears so much more weight. There's presence in the joy of the angels of God. It's God who's doing the rejoicing over one sinner that repents and turns to Him. What a joyous occasion. What something to be praised. And God to be all the glory. When we talk to people about their sin, we need to remember the goal. James 5 and 20. Let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Respectfully and with humility, I want to be plain for a second. If you go to talk to somebody about their sin and you have any other motivation except the salvation of a soul, turn around and go home. Go back to the house. Call somebody else. You're not the one. 
our motivation for confronting or talking to someone about their sin should only be that their soul may be saved and that there may be a multitude of sins that are hidden. Nothing else. Nothing else. Jesus discussed worship with this woman. Verse 20, she says that you Jews say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And again in verse 21, he tells her it's neither here nor there. This mountain or in Jerusalem, that is not what matters. Verse 22, you worship what you know not. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. We talked about the sincerity of some people who worship God. And I can never question that. But at the end of the day, we need to worship God according to the truth of His Word, not what we think is best for us. Verse 25, The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When He is come, He will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am He. I've always found verse 26 very interesting. This is the first time Jesus ever revealed His Messiahship. The first time. He didn't reveal His Messiahship first to the elders there in Jerusalem or, or the chief priests or the captains of the temple. None of that. Not His disciples, not His mother and brother, nobody. It was this Samaritan woman this sinner, this person who the Jews looked at as less than a dog. Now let's review for just a second. <clears throat> Jesus went to a place that Jews just didn't go. Are you willing to do that? Jesus talked with someone that He had absolutely nothing in common with. Jesus talked with someone Jews didn't talk to. He also navigated very sensitive topics of conversation. He appealed to her needs. He confronted her sin, but he did so gently. He addressed the matter of worship with her. And ultimately, he revealed his Messiahship. Now the results of this interaction. Verse 28, the woman then left her water pot. Remember, she carried that thing half a mile to Jacob's well. But here she is. She's leaving it behind. And she went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come see a man which told me all things ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. Verse 39, And many of the Samaritans that of that city believed on him. Many. Should have capitalized that probably. For the saying of the woman which testified, He told me all that I ever did, or ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. Verse 41, And many more believed because of his own word. And said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now after two days... He departed thence and went into Galilee. I think it's interesting that he stayed in this place two days. But nonetheless, we see the results. 
Many of the Samaritans believed. Many more believed. <clears throat> and it all started with just a cup of water. Don't overcomplicate what God intended to be simple. <clears throat> you get out your songbooks, please. <clears throat> I want to ask you a question as we begin to wrap this thing up. Do you want to reach people? I mean, really. Do you sincerely want to reach the lost? Or are you content with what we have right here? I'm not knocking what we have. But is this, is this good enough for you? If you want to reach people, Matthew 22, verse 39 Jesus said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. If you're willing to do that, everything that we discussed tonight, I believe will follow organically. Obviously, you're going to have to put in some effort, some time, some sweat equity, as Van likes to say. But if you're willing to love your neighbor as yourself, I think it'll happen for us. Heaven will be crowded. <clears throat> We want to offer the Lord's invitation this evening to anyone that may stand in need of it. If you've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ and would like to, tonight is certainly a good time to do that. If you stand in need of prayers, if you need counsel, whatever it is that you may be needing at this time, won't you come and have a seat on one of these front benches as we stand and we offer this song of invitation.